Hi, and welcome back to the podcast in partnership with Najahi Events. More about them later. Always trying to bring you great guests, as you know, and I say that probably every single week, but yet again, the team have got someone special for you. Let me tell you her story. She's a British record-breaking polar explorer and a renowned international speaker focusing on topics of leadership, teamwork, and the environment. She's the first woman in history, along with expedition teammate Caroline Hamilton, to reach the North and South Poles as part of all women teams. <laughs> and she had no previous outdoor experience. How about that? She achieved a world record as part of the first women's team to ski to both poles, and it's a record that has never been beaten. She continued to explore the polar regions, taking on the role of head of ice operations for the Catlin Arctic Survey, where she led a team across the most extreme environment on Earth for 74 consecutive days, as well as working with NASA, the European Space Agency and other scientific bodies in their research into this unique part of the world. She's endured extreme temperatures of minus 53 degrees. She's swam through open Arctic waters and has covered over 3,000 miles on ice. I'm cold just thinking about it. What a phenomenal person. I'm so intrigued by her story, her motivation, and how she deals with these hostile and dangerous yet stunning landscapes. Please welcome the incredible Anne Daniels. Well, Anne, thank you so much for coming to join us on the podcast. It's great to have another extraordinary story to tell from someone who describes himself as rather ordinary. Now, I've watched a lot of your content, so um, I've got a really good understanding of your background, what, who you are and what you've achieved, which I'm incredibly jealous of, by the way, before we go any further. Um, but for the benefit of the audience that are watching right now here in Dubai, uh, in the UK, in the US, Please just uh, introduce yourself and uh, give us a little bit of a taster of what Anne is all about. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I'm thrilled to be here. Um, it's a great honour to talk to all you wonderful people. Who am I? I? I do describe myself as ordinary. I came from humble backgrounds. I was brought up in a normal house, left school at 15. And... Um, I had a lot of challenges in my life, but it wasn't, I don't think, until one of the biggest challenges, which was having a baby triplets and then facing a single motherhood when my marriage dissolved when they were babies, that I then just saw an opportunity. And I think life's full of opportunities. And it was to um, become part of the first all women's team to walk to the North Pole. Well, I'd never skied and I never had a rucksack on my back. So why wouldn't I apply to do this thing? Uh, and I applied uh, and I got selected. Oh, it was a bit of a process, but I managed to get on the team. And that, so from that, I have been to the North Pole and the South Pole. I've got world records being the first women's team. I've worked on scientific expeditions. So I speak, I do staff. <laughs> okay, well, thank you for sharing that. Let's just go back a little bit and talk about what a lot of people might describe as the the, the biggest challenge you faced it or the, the, the biggest experience you had. And some people won't find that imaginable. They'll find it unimaginable, the fact that you had triplets. <laughs> Do you know, um, it was, again, it was one of those moments where I thought I'd have a child uh, um, and then I did go through a period of infertility. So I had IVF and they told me back in the day, 27 years ago, that the chances of having one child was about 17%. But if I put, you know, that's if I put three in and there was no chance I'd have three. Well, of course um, I did, but it was an extraordinary moment because as soon as they put three clusters in me, I didn't want to lose one. So immediately I thought, oh, they're mine. Um, and I did have that bond, I'm very lucky. And then I wanted to enjoy them because I'd had so long away and such a difficult path. And I thought, I will enjoy them, I will cope. And that's what my life became about. It was just madness. I was either feeding babies or I was walking them or 
But I loved it because it's a lot of it's about your mindset, isn't it? I didn't expect to cope and then go have a lovely social life and a big job. I just expected to look after the kids and, and I enjoyed it, but it was full on. And I won't say it was easy, but um, as with all challenges, the more difficult they are, the more that you enjoy them and the bigger achievement it is. So yeah, it was a challenge. So to, to, to tell me about the day where you had to, where you found out that you, that you had triplets coming. Were you sitting there with your husband at the clinic or the hospital when they told you? Was it a scan? What, 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 how did it happen? And how did, how did he react and how did you react in that moment? <laughs> uh, we, um, we, had, we had to go back to the hospital in quite early days. Um, but I pretty much was intuitive and knew they were going to say it and they do a really quick scan. So at the time, it's just three kind of almost little sacks you can see. But because I hadn't lost anything, I just had that feeling of I've got I know I have them. It was an internal. I know I've got the three. My poor husband obviously didn't have that feeling. <laughs> uh, so when they told us it was a, a bit of a shock and a <gasps> Okay, and a bit of a panic. Okay, I, I didn't want to lose any of them, but that, uh, and I was a bit frightened. Um, and I, I managed to hang on to them for eight months. I put on six stone. I was in hospital for three months because my womb was, was, my womb was full term for the last three months. Um, I could hardly walk, I was that big. Um, and then they uh, had to do a, a C-section because my body was not, not letting them go. So um, <laughs> they did that and then it actually was a nurse that really helped me because she said to me, um, and it doesn't sound right, but it was, she said to me, look Anne, I'm telling you now, I, you will not cope with three children, you won't. I have women in here who have one and they don't. And I'm not telling you because I want you to panic, I'm telling you because I don't want you to expect that that you're or think you're failing and I'm going to give you my private number and when you're stuck or you're desperate give me a call or call your friends you have to accept all this help because it's it's going to be really tough and I thought it was a wonderful thing to do um but her saying that I thought sod that for a game of soldiers I will cope because I want to enjoy it uh, I'm 30 years of age it took me 10 years to get here but I appreciated her saying it because it gave me the, the right and the confidence and the kind of the safety blanket that if I couldn't cope, I didn't have to think it was me. That makes sense. So she yeah. was brilliant for me. She was a great kind of guardian angel for me to be able to go on and, and deal with all the, the, the panic of three babies never sleeping. And I don't think I slept for the first year. <laughs> it's hardly surprising I got divorced after a year, is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, when, when, when we, can we just talk about that for a minute? Because this, this massive achievement you have of getting pregnant after trying for a while and then having triplets and then giving birth to triplets and then literally having to cope with triplets. Then sometime later, I think you describe it as 18 months later, that your marriage broke down. And a lot of people, they describe divorce as like somebody dying. But when you've got three triplets and you've got that type of situation, how did you, how did you get your head around it? Did it depress you? Did it, did it leave you empty and lost? Or did it, did it give you a sense of, of freedom? What was it like for you? Wasn't freedom. It was horrific and I can't, um, depression isn't the right word for it. I was bereft. Um, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't want it to happen. I, uh, at the time I still, you don't fall out of love with your husband because they fall out of love with you. And that's not a blame thing, you know, that, that was how he was feeling. And so suddenly um, I was bereft that this, this, this guy that I'd loved since I was 18, didn't feel that about me anymore and and I had these three children so um there was uh, anybody that can remember at that time I was now I'm fine I can cope with the children and I was running around like a mad idiot while they were awake and then when I put them to bed at night I would just lie under the covers and feel an overwhelming I guess that's depression it wasn't a blackness it was that I'm in so much pain. I'll tell you what I thought. Uh, I never considered taking my own life, so I don't want to misinterpret what I felt. 
but I had never until that time understood how anybody could feel that hopeless or that everything was so bad that they would want to take their own life. I'd never understood how anybody could want to. But the first time in my life I understood it because you can't run away from the pain. You can't pack and go on holiday. It's with you. And sometimes I would have to just remember how to breathe. Just if you breathe, you'll be fine. And so when I put the children to bed, I would feel, feel that overwhelming horror. But then as soon as they were awake, I kind of put it in a drawer in the back of my head. Um, I'm not saying it wasn't there, but it's I've got to get on with these kids. I've got to get them fed. I've got to smile at them. I've got to get them to a little preschool or where they were, just take them for a walk. And I've got to give them everything. And then when they were back in bed I don't the drawer would suddenly burst open again and I'd have that overwhelming I can just go all I can do is go to bed now and just because I don't know I can't see a future on my own it was it was it was not it was not good <laughs> um, and and that went on for and how I got out of that um because it, it was just with me um two things happened my son looked at me one uh so he was it was maybe a year after when he looked at me i'll never forget it, it might have even been two and he went you don't you don't laugh anymore mum and i thought oh my god so i thought i have to do something about that i'd done all the right things and i found some new friends because all my friends were joined i met him at 18 and moved to he was in the the military where he lived so I found new friends, I did all the, the right structure, but I just wasn't emotionally getting it. So quite frankly, I went to the doctor and um, it was after even the, the expeditions, I was still panicking. So I was, people talk about a functioning alcoholic. I was a functioning mess. So I was functioning and, and doing things, but inside I was in a, it, I was hor it was horrible. So I went to see the doctor uh, and I just sat on his couch, if you will, or his chair and sobbed and went, look at me. It was pre-South Pole. Uh, look at me. This has been going, I'm two years into it and I'm a mess. And he went, right, I need to get help on. He said, I need to get help. Uh, there is, because um, again, I'm not, I wasn't, I'm still not wealthy, but I'm certainly uh, more secure financially, but I was nothing then financial wise. He said, um, I'll get you in. There is a waiting list on the NHS, but I'm going to get you in. Uh, and he got me in. And that counsellor absolutely changed, got me out of it. So, you know, whilst I was performing and people couldn't see the deep, dark depth that was part of me, that counsellor saved my, not my life, because I was never going to take my life. I don't want to lie about that, but, but saved me, my internal me, and got me back. Uh, and from that counsellor, I just went from strength to strength to strength and thought, what he got me to see, nobody. I knew it was up to me to do my expeditions, my job, earn my money, look after the kids. But I learned it was up to me to make me happy, to look after my self-worth and that nobody else is responsible for that. And, I, and that was when I began to heal and I knew I had to do certain things like remove myself from my ex-husband because I was still clinging on. I had to do that and look after myself and my own self-worth. And I will never let anybody, no, that's not if I say let anybody, I will never allow myself to be so um, affected by my, I've now learned that I'm responsible for my personal happiness as well as my personal stuff, you know, performance. So <clears throat> both of those things we've just talked about there, your divorce along with you having triplets, it's far from ordinary. What you went through is far from ordinary. And then what you decided to embark upon was beyond compare. And some would probably describe you as mad as a box of frogs. How does somebody, I interviewed a girl last week on the show who has just rowed across the Atlantic Ocean. She's a 21 year old kid, broke the world record for rowing across the Atlantic Ocean. She was at sea for 71 days and she said, I sometimes feel more alone in a crowded room than I did when I was on the boat um, alone for 71 days. And that kind of really stuck in my head. And, but, but she, when I started talking to her, she hadn't um, been a rower for years and years and years. It was only 18 months earlier that she'd ever picked up oars and tried to row anything. 
and 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 so I, and I find that fascinating. And there's also a girl called Lizzie Yarnold who I've got to know. And Lizzie won two gold medals in the Olympics, uh, one after the other in the skeleton in the Winter Olympics. And Lizzie again had never done the skeleton two years before she got into the Olympic team, but fell in love with the sport very quickly and went like crazy to learn as quick as she could and get involved. And she, bear in mind, it's the Winter Olympics. The Brits aren't really well known for Winter Olympics. It's usually the Austrians, the Germans, the Swedes, the Swiss and that kind of stuff. And, and so sometimes you see people get into stuff where they don't have any previous experience. And your story repeats that again. So in the matter of a few weeks, I've got somebody else, I'm, you can tell me now, that you weren't this avid mountaineer, this avid polar explorer. You weren't this person. You were, this is where the word ordinary comes. This ordinary person that sees an advert in the newspaper, for goodness sake. Now, whether you'd had too many glasses of Chianti or whether you'd had too much coffee, I don't know. Well, what possessed you to respond to that ad? Yeah, but I'm not going to answer that immediately. Um, is to go back to those, those women that you've talked to me about. In general, women are not, we are not from small children or, or small girls encouraged to go out and do these extreme rowing or Olympics or unless some of my peers who are my age, they came from very wealthy families. They went to private school. One of my closest friends now who I met through expeditions went, I was only ever brought up to be a captain of industry and that was the only thing I was ever done. I was made to take typing lessons when I was doing my exams at school. <laughs> so, you know, we weren't encouraged. And then now, which is wonderful, we have International Women's Day, we have, we have encouragement, it's a long way to go. So we're, ca- we're not just coming out of the kitchen, we're coming out of everywhere. And things, so there's more opportunities. So we may have done that years ago if the opportunities were there and we saw them, we may have suddenly made jumps, but they weren't. And so you're right. Um, when I saw the advert in a newspaper, I'd never seen anything like that before. I'd never had seen an opportunity to go climb something or walk something. And because I was brought up in, in a you know social estate on a, a, in a city, those things didn't come across and we didn't do Duke of Edinburgh at school for God's sake. So I'd never seen anything. And when I saw it, um, I kind of thought, wow. That, and it said for ordinary people, if I hadn't said that, I might not have applied. If I hadn't been in a world of pain, I might not have applied. Um, and I just thought, oh, wow, I'm going to have a go. But I, so to be fair, I didn't think I'm going to have a go and get to the North Pole. I just thought, oh, wouldn't it be good to go for that weekend? That'd be a great thing to do. Then when I applied and, uh, and didn't have any of the kit uh, and was given it by friends who were in the military, who think stole it, gave it to me so I could do the selection. <laughs> I Then I caught the dream and thought, good God, this is a real opportunity. And I'm going to say it. For somebody like me and I don't believe there should be such a thing as thinking oh like me it's not for the likes of me it's for somebody better but I did somebody like me could have a go at this uh, and I'm not letting it go I'm not bloody stupid um so I just went for it and then I think my background is it may have held me back many times but that's what really helped me because I came from a tougher state where you bloody well fought every day you know to survive and all and to keep going and it was part of my DNA to I was this scrawny little thing that had to be a bit tough so I was and and then I managed to get on the team wow how did it feel when you got that? I mean, you've, you've spoken about it before, but <clears throat> when you were told uh, uh, 200 people that had entered into this, that you were one of the team to be selected, how, how did it feel in that moment? Oh, it was two things because uh, the selection was two big weekends and it happened over a period. The first selection when I was rubbish and then I had nine months to train and, and figure out how to become a, a member. Uh, so I worked really hard and did that. So then the second selection was four days and I got to know all these women and some of them I was really good friends with. 
and we all went down to this barn and I had a little inkling I might I might be in with a chance because one of the selectors had asked me if my children would be all right if I got on the team and I thought oh, who must, why would you ask that if I didn't have a chance so I went in the barn with this little bubble of excitement but dared and it was still that don't get excited Anne. and I waited and waited and I was full of apprehension and then I heard my name and just went I was so excited I was tears of joy and then something really odd happened is that those 200 let's say there's only 200 by now women there my some of my really close friends didn't get on the team so we're all together whilst I'm really excited I then looked around and some people that I cared about were in tears sad because they hadn't got on the team so it was a real interesting time because I was still very happy and excited but I really did have empathy and care for them and was sad for them so it was a real interesting mix in in me of how I felt um, and then obviously uh, when I got home and you're not with them anymore I'm sort of not ashamed to say you kind of forget the poor people that didn't get on in your emotions and I was I was just blown away by I'm going to have a chance to go to the Arctic, or I am going to go, not even a chance. How, how amazing is that? Just to go to somewhere. I don't ever been to Dartmoor in my whole life, which is a little, you know, it's beautiful. It's a moors. Never been, I've never been skiing. It, it, it was, um, it was, it was just wonderful time. And it was great for me for having gone through a tough time shall we say how, how big a bigger challenge was the first expedition for you if you can give me a mark out of 10 and then tell me more about what 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 fears you had going into it and what you experienced while you were there difficulty um i would say if 10 was the most difficult and not was easy I, I i would only go for about five or six this is in hindsight for knowing what I know now. Um, yeah, about five or six on the actual scale. Because, so can I ask you how I, can I answer how you feel, how I felt before and then explain why it was only five or six? So before I went, I was in real fear and my fears, and they're the same even now, and I've done lots of expeditions now. It's not that I'll, get eaten by a polar bear or I'll be cold or I'll die. I don't have those fears. Uh, you know, I, I understand, but they don't frighten me. What is always my fear, I'll let the team down. That was my fear. <gasps> what if I can't, what if I let the team down? What if I'm not good enough? It's, that's, that's part of me, it's my DNA. What if I'm not good enough? What if I let the team down? So as a result of that fear, what I did was I trained beyond training to get myself the strongest I could ever be for me I'm you know, never going to be Arnold Schwarzenegger but for me the strongest I could be I put time in learning how to navigate the little cookers that we turned on I would take them apart a bit like a military guy might strip his gun I was doing it with the cookers and so I again if I wasn't with the children obviously a little bit older now I was learning my craft at home so then when I was a bit scared of the cold because I've never I'd never felt it when I got to the Arctic I got there before I it was a relay five five leg five teams of four women and I was on the first leg and I got to the Arctic and the cold when I got off the aeroplane I sucked the air in and my lungs, I thought they were gonna crack and I panicked and, and ran inside. And then I, uh, I got used to the cold and I wasn't gonna die for breathing it in, those kind of things. And the guides were there. And when uh, they sent me out to train, um, I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't wanna come in, but I could feel my cheeks hurting. But I thought, oh, I don't want them to think I'm a wuss. I've never done this. And I stayed out longer than I should. So I went in, I'd got frost nip on my cheeks. The guys thought I was complete imbecile. Uh, yeah, fair enough. But then, so then they, they spent a bit of time with me so that when we went out for that first leg of the journey, 
you think there's a team of four women. I was one, I was one, it's not an ego thing, I was one of the strongest physically. So you're only as fast as the as the weakest member, and that's not quite right because everybody's got skills, but you know what I mean? So I because I was one of the strongest, I didn't find it horrifically difficult pulling my sledge. I could do it within the team. It didn't. So that's what I mean. Um, yeah, it was cold, but actually I was in so much joy. I'd put in so much work beforehand. We couldn't go fast because it was a novice team. Actually, it, it wasn't that horrific. It, it, oh, it was tough. That's why I say five. It was cold and we were pulling sledges, but it was nothing compared to what I have done, shall we say, since then. Looking back, that's your taster. You've got involved in it. You've had an exciting time. Team of ladies, a lot of camaraderie, a bit of, I'm sure, a bit of competition in there, but a lot of support. And so that's that's given you the taste. Yeah. And so that's that that became then your drug. That did become my drug. That's a really good way of putting it. I was out there. <laughs> I'm going to use that now, steal it. <laughs> I was out there and it blew my mind. And um, bear in mind, the children are now three because I was 18 months when I did the selection. So they're now three. And I kept, my mum and dad were looking after them. So they were fine. And I remember being out there and just this is just amazing it spoke to my soul i thought this is what i meant to do with the rest of my life and how proud would my children be when i come home and i can share this with them i felt that it brought something to this little odd family of me and and three little children it brought something and i thought i never imagined in my life we're all proud of our children it's in our dna it's what we are proud of them no matter how good of that's just the way it is but for me the opportunity actually to maybe make my children proud of me that also blew my mind and it was i i thought this is i have to do this again somehow um and and came back and and that was the start that was that was where my passion for all things cults began my journey so how long how long after the first first expedition did you have in terms of time between your next big challenge so that was 1997 and then uh five of us got actually it was six i would say five because five went six of us got together um, through that time and six of us from the relay wanted to do something else that was ours that wasn't put together by um, a guy called Penhado put put that relay together it wasn't put together we didn't have guides so we got together uh, some of them I didn't know because they were on different legs but each person kind of had all met in in training and we sat in a pub with a glass of wine and went yeah, we want to do something. What what can we do? Like an empty piece of paper. And we came up with the plan of no, uh, it was British, no British women's team has walked to the South Pole uh, from, from the edge of Antarctica. And the reason that it was important to do something that was first was not honestly because we wanted to necessarily do a first, but we knew we had to get the funding. So if you do something that's a first, you can get the media coverage, you can, it helps you to get the funding, uh, which is a very tough thing. Um, to go all the way to the North Pole, we didn't feel that we had the skills right now because it is so much more harder than the South Pole. So that's, we just got together and said, right, let's put the team together. Let's plan it ourselves, train and, and cross Antarctica to the South Pole. And it took us three years so, to so plan. Three years to plan it. So to give people some, some perspective and some understanding here, how long in terms of distance is it from the edge to the South Pole? 700 miles thereabouts, give or take 12. <laughs> so 700 miles from the edge to the South Pole. And you, yeah. do, you do that all on foot? On foot. Uh, we skied, obviously, we pulled our own equipment in sledges, we man sledge hauled, woman hauled. Uh, yeah, we sledge hauled 700 miles, pulling our kit across the windiest, highest, driest, coldest continent on earth. 
with the wind always blowing in your faces because the winds are catabatic they start up on the top of the plateau and drive down so you're always walking against the wind as you're skiing 700 miles and how long did it take you 60 days so two months non-stop on the go no Egyptian cotton sheets and nice comfy pillows to stay in and a nice warm electric blanket to keep you warm in a hotel. No wonderful porcelain toilets and bidets and showers and, and lovely baths to soak yourself in. No, no um, uh, a glass of wine or open fireplace to sit around to tell stories. Just biting, bitter, freezing, grim, cold. Just biting, bitter, freezing, grim, cold. And you're right, you can't go in a hotel at all, ever. It's 24 hours a day, it's constant. And there is no escape. And our sledges weighed more than we did, nearly two times. I'm not a big woman by any stretch of the imagination. So whilst we were doing that every day where it's like hauling a a dead man lying down plus so how much how much does the sled weigh about 250 pound um so 100 and something kilogram don't know what that is in kilograms and 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 that 100 and something ki kilograms and then how much did you weigh it yes yeah, so, yeah about that and how much did you weigh i weigh around so i didn't know pounds really i put weight on to go so 140 pounds so nearly twice my weight twice your weight you're pulling okay so you're all excited to go you get down there you start the adventure what do you notice that's after your previous adventure what do you notice immediately that's different when you get to antarctica was it the wind was it colder was it was it what was it just explain to me uh, everything really uh, uh again that's a really interesting question which i haven't thought about but um when we went there were just us the five of us when we went to the north pole we had guides so there was always somebody who would know the answers or would help us this time it's just us and so there was the fear of oh, what if we can't do it so there was a different fear when we got there and we knew when we set off uh, all on our own when the we, we were taken in with the plane and the plane leaves us and it's just us and we looked at each other and went, oh, it's down to us. There is nobody to help us. And we all were equal. Um, and were, we were all strong. We were all as strong as each other. So I can't say I was the strongest in the team. We were all equal. What was different was also we, we all had our own skills that we had known about. So I took on, we, we took on a role, whereas in the North Pole, we were just part of the team and we didn't even know our role. So I was navigator and so we'd go out to the front. Caroline was, we joined, we swapped rather than one person. Somebody else did um, part, mostly the cooking and somebody else would, so we each was doing the weather check. We had a doc, you know, physio who became our doctor. So we each had roles and we were each leading our own part of it, if you will, but we were equal, uh, equal but together. Um, and, it, and it was very different, a little bit more exposed, but we became a really cohesive team. It was, it was great to watch uh, or to feel it change. When we first arrived on Antarctica, we were all very different individuals. When you're living in that kind of an environment, it doesn't matter whether you're rich, you're poor, you have a big car or you cycle or, you know, your dad's a barrister or is a coal man. It doesn't matter. What matters is it you're back to who you are, the bare bones of you as an individual, and that counts. And it was really interesting to understand that we all try and put our best faces on when we're in public or at work or at any time, and we do that. It's a part of our nature. When you're together for 60 days without a break, you can't put your best faces on you. It is who you are. And what was really nice was the, that kind of understanding is I am going to always do my best for the team, but I'm not always going to be my best self. And it's okay sometimes to 
just not be just not be right. I might even be mean one day, or I might not be bothered, or I might not be my perfect self. And that was all right too. That you can be who you, you don't have to be perfect. And you, when we loved each other and cared for each other, when we were having down days or bad days, as well as when we were strong and up. Um, and it's very rare that you. As I would say civilians, I'm sure the military have it, but as civilians that you are in such a team where you're reliant on each other for emotional, physical well-being, for the success, for everything, um, for such a long period of time, night and day. Don't spend that long with your spouses. Um, uh, and that I, I enjoyed that. It was really good. I don't say that we, we were always happy with each other, but it was a good it was good. Describe one or two really dark moments for me. Um, I think the dark moments were the South Pole can be quite monotonous, um, which sounds terrible. But when you get there, it's beautiful. Uh, the skies are huge. The ice is gorgeous. There's sculptures. But of course, when you're in anything 24 hours, it does become your normal sights. And so the, some of the darker days where the, the wind is just blowing at you, you can feel your fingers solidifying with the cold and you've got to wheel them. And then when the warmth comes into your fingers uh, that have got cold, then they burn like they're on fire, the pain. The same happens with your toes. You can feel the wind and as you're breathing or you have to have your head face covered, it freezes you have stalactites coming down from your nose it's just a hostile environment you're pulling a sledge it's monotonous because you've seen the same ice forever you're pulling a sledge it's horrific you're hurting you're on day let's say 22 and you've got days and days of more of the same putting one foot in front of the other and those days were sometimes tough and in those days because sometimes, uh, so on top of that, you might, the sun, you might be in a whiteout kind of condition um, where the sun hasn't been out for three days. So you've not seen anything. And in those days to keep going is, is, is just tough. And what, how I did it was I would just put my head down and to stop the madness coming in, because that's what it felt like at times. I chanted the kids' names, just Joseph, Lucy, Rachel, Joseph, Lucy, Rachel. <laughs> or I counted numbers, like a metronome to get me through that hour. And then we'd all stop and you could guarantee if you were going through that, because it had been a long sloggy day, your pals were going through it. And that was a sense of comradeship where you'd stop and then you'd all talk for 10 minutes before you set off. But that feeling of, oh, it's not just me, actually, we're all finding it tough. How long are you on the move each day and how many calories do you burn and what food do you take with you? Well, we were on the move. We uh, had tried to have at least seven hours sleep on that trip. And then it would take us, uh, let's say, two hours to melt the water and cook until I was in the morning and night. So eight, nine, 10, 11. So we were, pro well, we were probably on the move about 12 hours because you have to set up tent and all that. So we would be outside skiing between 11 and 12 hours. We would ski for an hour and 15 minutes, stop and have a 10 minute break, hour and 15 minutes, stop and have a 10 minute break and, and so on and so forth. We might have 20 minutes at lunch. That was our every day. Um, Oh, what was your other question? What food did you eat and how many calories did you burn? So uh, food, we took uh, 6,000 calorie food per day. It might be 5,800, five, 5, but it was around 6,000 calories. And that was dried food in the morning, such as porridge that we added water to. And then we'd add powdered milk and then we'd add butter to that. Um, drink lots of hot chocolate. During the day, we had a big snack bag and that was full of chocolates, nuts, chopped cheese, salami, really high fat foods, a couple of biscuits. Um, and then in an evening, again, we had a dehydrated meal that we added water with um, and then we'd add cheese and butter. And there was within that, it was 6,000 calories or thereabouts but it had to be in around a kilogram in weight because you've got to pull the whole bloody lot of it. Yeah. 
even carrying 6,000 calories uh, a day and eating it all, I lost over two stone in weight by the time I got to the wow. pole. I was a shadow of myself and I didn't lose as much weight as some of the women, uh, Rosie particular and Zoe who were on the team, when they took their clothes off, we went into the base, there's a scientific base there and had a shower. It was quite shocking. They were just skin and bones. And so these these questions are asked. I, there's, there's some friends of mine that were in a TV show called Losing Sight of Shore where they rowed across the Pacific Ocean for girls um, from San Francisco uh, across to um, uh, Australia, to Canberra in Australia. And they were two and a half weeks out to sea and they got a leak on their boat and they had to go back and row all the way back to, to San Francisco to fix the leak and then go again. So lots of challenges that they, they, they had to face along the way. And, and everyone, you know, I say to them, what's the question everyone asks? And they're like, how do you go to the toilet? And so that seems to be a kind of common theme. How do people go to the toilet? How do they keep themselves clean, etc.? I'm not going to ask you those types of questions, but I've been out on, on expeditions, climbing mountains and stuff, and I know how much more refreshed and how good you feel if you get a chance to wash. It just seems to give you energy and the ability to be positive and just to feel good. But you've not had the benefit of doing that for a long period of time. How good was that shower at the scientific base? It was great. One of the things about doing that kind of thing in the cold is because you can't smell each other. Like you don't, when you're in your fridge, you don't smell it. <laughs> so there was always that. <laughs> but you could smell yourself in your bag in the morning. Oh, it was it was fantastic. And but one shower wasn't enough to get the dirt off, and we were all trying because there was only I think there was two showers that we could use we're all trying to get in um so we could have a quick one and then went back in for another one so we could all have a go and I just didn't want to get out that feeling of just being clean and as a female I think this is particular to us we're just used to waxing and shaving all the time and that was the worst the odd things when I looked under my arms and thought Oh, it wasn't the dirt. Oh my gosh, what is all that? That's just awful. So getting a razor was was for me better than the shower. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and, and t tell me, when, when people achieve great things like you did getting to the South Pole, can you just tell me, was the, the feeling of reaching that point as amazing as we would guess it was or was it amazing just for a couple of minutes and then almost it faded away no it was amazing as you guess it was it still is if i allow i don't think about it really very often um but if i think about it i think wow we did that and um you know not that it, not that many females were doing it in 2000 as well um and 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 actually, after that, we did the whole thing to the North Pole We after the relay. And so we sort of became the first women to do both poles. The North Pole has never been repeated by a women's team from land to the North Pole. Um, and so when I think of both of them, even now, I think, good God, Anne. I think everybody's somewhere. So please take this next statement in context. I think everybody's someone. I don't think nobody's no one. I think you're no one from nowhere. And you, you've been to the Southern North Pole. And I don't think about it a lot, but when I do, if I really spend the time, I think, wow, who'd have ever thought it? And I do get a lot of pleasure from it. I don't think I'm great or I've got this big ego. Oh, look at me, I'm amazing. But I sometimes have to pinch myself and go, Oh, wow, you did it, girl. It's amazing that you share this with us. And let's just talk a little bit about the psychology of people and how they'll spend time talking themselves out of something before they talk themselves into something. You're, you're a living example of that. And uh, you, you could argue that you can do anything you set your mind to. But what do you think it is that holds people back and stops them from taking that leap, taking that challenge and, and going out there and pushing themselves? I have thought about this a lot. Um, and one of my trainers says, you, whenever I, one of my personal trainers that was given to me for one of my trips, and he went, you're really odd. Uh, whenever I ask you things, you don't question it. You just do it. He went, I can ask you to do the oddest things. And you never look at me and think, can I do that? You just do it. I went, 
well, why wouldn't I have a go? And so I think the mindset is that most people are, they either think they're not good enough, so oh, I mustn't have a go because I'm not good enough and I'm going to fail and I don't want to fail, or they are there is that fear of failure, of I'm going to fail, what people are going to think of me, I'm not going to be able to do it, and that fear of failure I think stops a lot of people doing things. My thought is. I don't care if I fail. I just want to have a go. I don't need to have to be the best at everything. I quite, some stuff I do that I'm, I tried to do some, I'm going to go back so I want to learn it. But I had to go at kite surfing. Oh, you've never seen anybody as ridiculous in all your life. I was rubbish <laughs> at it. So bad at it. But I don't care. I'm going to have another go and just for the fun of it. So I think if I was going to give anybody an encouragement is don't worry about failure, just enjoy. It's a very big cliche, but cliches are generally there for a reason. Just enjoy the experience, enjoy the, the bravery of having a go. And sometimes you won't manage to get what you want, but sometimes you will. And if you never jump off uh, that board, you will never experience the joy of actually achieving something but that achieving has to be what you want I don't when I say achieving things I don't mean change the world whatever it is that you want to achieve you know I once saw Special Olympics um, I was really privileged I was invited they were one of our charities and I was watching these athletes that they were achieving things that you and I could just do on a, a morning because you, you know for them, it was such a, a difficult journey to get to jumping half a foot for a long jump. For them was a great achievement. And I watched it and I watched their achievement. It made me humble and proud and joyous. And that's what I mean by achievement. Don't set yourself up about somebody else. Find what your achievement is, what you want. And just bloody go for it. Don't care if you don't quite do it right or you don't look great. Don't be afraid of that failure. Now, you've done many adventures and stuff that I genuinely am jealous because you've done them and I haven't got around to doing some of them yet. <clears throat> I've, uh, I'm very keen to go to both the North and the South Pole. But again, like you, I'm not keen. I'm not keen to do it in a four by four like Jeremy Clarkson and stuff like that. But um, <laughs> right, Jeremy Clarkson went to the magnetic North Pole when it was on land, not the geographic North Pole. And he didn't even go to the magnetic North Pole. He went to where it was in 1997 when he wasn't going. So he didn't even go there. Not that that that. Not that I'm passionate about that or anything. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I just think I, I think I, I I stirred something up in you just then for a moment there. The the fire came out. Bloody Better nerve bloody, or anything? <laughs> bloody, bloody Jeremy Clarkson. Bloody Jeremy Clarkson. <laughs> <laughs> Epic. So so for me, one of my dreams is to be able to go and climb a mountain with my, my one of my or two of my daughters. They're one's eighteen and one's twenty one. And I'd love to take them to do something like that with me to experience what I experience and feel what I feel. Have any of your kids had the same ambitions to follow in your footsteps? Uh, the triplets, no, none of them. I did encourage them to go and do what, don't, don't try and live up to what I do or you have to go live up to what you do. And so one works in festivals, one's a teacher, one's, but I am married again. I have a wonderful supportive husband and I have a, a, I'll say a new child she's 18 she is the one that we've done the three peaks in the UK she goes walking she is the one that has it and that wants to come and do stuff with me and so because she wants to I will take her in as much as I would never push any of mine to do something they have to really want to do it and so we do lots of we we do do we do lots of things together. I'm walking just the south, just it's a big walk, the southwest path with Pom Oliver, who's one of my polar people. And I said, Sarah, come and join us. And so she will. And then when the time comes, uh, she can come out to the coal with me. I can't wait. And tell me what what's next for you, Anne? 
Oh, I'm thrilled because um, you have just hit me really there. I have a, a guy called Martin Hartley who has been on a lot of um, expeditions with me. He's an amazing photographer. He's also an expeditioner. He's putting an expedition together to find the last of the multi-year ice left on the Arctic Ocean. It's all multi-year ice is where it doesn't melt in summer and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. The Arctic Ocean has historically always been full of it. It's nearly all gone. There's just some small bits left around Canada, Greenland and uh, Russia. So we're working with some big people, NASA, the European Space Agency, NOAA and lots of other scientists, the World Geographical Society. And his expedition is to go find the last of it, document it, film it, photograph it. And we're building like little um, boys to put on it so that it can be temperature measured that when it disappears they can track it um and that is going to disappear in the next two or three years so he's asked me to well, i hate the word lead because it's not lead because it's his expedition to navigate so i'll be at the front finding the way and helping them during the day to you know the cooking the, the tent stuff so that martin can do his job and take the photographs the scientists can do the science the filmmakers can do what they need to do and i'm i'm thrilled to be part of it to me it's so exciting to be able to do something good for the planet and deeply sad that in the next five years there'll be no multi-year ice left on the Arctic Ocean. So uh, I do a lot of that kind of work now and it, it just fills me with, with awe that I'm able to use my stupid skills to help intelligent people understand this planet that we live on. That's just a fantastic thing to do. Well, I think you've just so eloquently shared such fantastic insights and such a wonderful story that I want to say a really, really big thank you for being so open and uh, enjoyable with us. Alicia here in the background is like, she was amazing. amazing. So, oh, you're <laughs> badass. Alicia's like, you're badass. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And thank you so, so much for coming to spend time on the podcast. It really has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, what an episode there with Anne Daniels, record-breaking polar explorer and someone who describes herself as just ordinary. <laughs> She's nothing like ordinary, is she? But what a great interview. What a lovely lady. Please go follow her and engage with her as much as you can and maybe learn more about her story. So it's always important to mention people that you partner with and partners for the podcast are Najahi events and Najahi tribe. Now, Najahi sounds like an unusual word, and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world leading public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years, and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries. Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, uh, Alicia Keys, and people like this. And they bring them in and they run events. And from those events, we go and we learn from these incredible people. On top of that, they launched the Najahi tribe recently, where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers, that literally you can join, become a member of, take advantage of a training from all of these different people, like real experts in their field. I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoy these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I events.com. If you're listening to this podcast on iTunes, please give me a five-star rating. It really means a lot if you do. If you're listening to it, though, on other podcast apps, then give me a follow, leave comments. The more engagement we have on this podcast, the more it gets reached and the more people can hear these stories too. So I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.